morning. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? We have been in a series in the Psalms. We have, it's a five-part series. We did delight, rest, thirst, and this week is mercy, Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, would you hide me today behind your cross and would we encounter you as you are, not as how we imagine you are, but as you are in both your holiness and in your great, great love. Let truth dispel all lies in our hearts and our minds. We ask this together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Mercy. So the prescript to Psalm 51, the words that are before the psalm are very important once again. It gives the context for the psalm. It's actually part of the word of God. Here's the little prescript before Psalm 51. A psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Point one, recognizing our need for mercy. This is probably the most dangerous time of David's life. He is prospering. He is the king. He is the man. It is a time where usually the kings join the army and lead the army, but David decides to stay home. We don't know why he stays home. But he stays home, and in his aloneness, he is walking in his palace, and he sees this beautiful woman, and he he invites her to come. He finds out she's married to somebody. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. 
Um, she lets him know she's pregnant. He, he's got a solution for it, so he invites her husband, Uriah, back to, to the palace, and, but he refuses to sleep with her, and so to cover that up, he, he, uh, he has Uriah killed on the front lines. And, um, and all through this, no repentance, no acknowledgement even that I have sinned. But he's got a friend named Nathan who's also a prophet and God has revealed to Nathan what's going on and Nathan comes in and he tells this story to David. You can read the whole thing in 2 Samuel 12. And he talks about these two farmers and one is very rich and one is very poor and one has all kinds of cattle and all kinds of sheep and the other one just has a single lamb and that lamb has been like one of his children. It eats at the table. He, he, he holds it and cuddles it like it's his, his daughter. And um, when this rich man has a guest come, instead of taking one of his many, many sheep, he decides that he is going to take this one lamb that this poor farmer has, and, and he kills it. And David interrupts the story at this point and says, this man deserves to die for what he did. I, I, I command right now that he pays four sheep for that one lamb that was taken from him. And Nathan says these words to David. You are the man. You are that man. And he says, this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) I gave you, I made you king. I anointed you as king. I rescued you from the power of Saul who was chasing you to try to kill you. I gave you his house and his wives. I gave you the kingdom of Israel and Judah. I brought them together. And if this hadn't been enough, all you needed to do is ask and I would have given you more. And your response to all my kindness, all my goodness, all of my favor is that you have sinned and trampled on my mercy by what you have done. And he says, you've caused my enemies to blaspheme me. And David finally owns his sin. And Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance. And it's there for all of us, for all time, to how to repent. It all starts by recognizing our need for mercy. It's very interesting that David uses a story about somebody else because we more clearly see sin in other people than we see it in ourselves. We, we, we had some... We had a guy come a, a month ago from another city. He's a leader. He's very excited about God, very on fire for God. And he met with a group of us. And um, I just was really bugged. He wasn't, here to, he wasn't here to talk with us. He was here to talk to us. 
he, he wasn't, this was not an exchange. He was very excited about what he believed, and he was telling us how it was, and, and this was not a conversation. He wasn't listening. He was talking, and it, it just, he, he was very excited about God, a very, very great man of God, and, but I'm just finding myself really bugged, and it's, it, it's really, just to be honest, that's not usually how I am. I'm I'm, I'm, I usually give everybody a, a mercy, and I love giving people mercy, and they are the way they are. Who knows? I'm not their judge. God is, and, but I'm really bugged. And um, afterwards, I'm talking to the Lord about it. I'm like, Lord, why, why, is, why was he bugging me so much? And I realized, oh, my. This is what I'm like. <laughs> This isn't about him. This is about me. And the Holy Spirit just took that knife and put it in me and kind of reviewed how I can be. And I, of course, repented and and owned it and said, God, please, please have mercy on me. Why do we become blind? to our own sins and our own need for mercy. I've got three reasons since you're asking. <laughs> one, is, one is self-justification. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But the Lord weighs the heart or weighs the motives. That just, just because you think you're fine and you're able to justify your ways does not mean that all is right. Listen to Psalm 36, 1 and 2. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. There's a little voice in every one of us called pride where we flatter ourselves and when we believe too highly of ourselves, we can no longer even detect our own sin. Just because we justify ourselves does not make us innocent before a holy God. Why, do, why, why can we be blunt? This is a big one, comparison to others. I can easily see David justifying his sin. That's how it was in those days. Kings did way worse than he did. Kate, you had the right to do whatever you wanted to. You could sleep with anybody. You could kill anybody. That's what kings do. And David, David doesn't do it often. This is a one-timer, and he, he, he goes to, still goes to synagogue, and he writes psalms, and he's still God's man, and this isn't that bad compared to what everybody else does. And it's really easy to feel righteous because our name wasn't in the paper for adultery or murder or stealing or we didn't do anything that big or that bad and therefore we've got this sense of we're okay because we're comparing ourselves to others. Well, here's the problem with that. That's not how God sees us. You see a sheep on a summer day 
in a field and you're going to say there are some white sheep. You say that you see those same sheep after a snowstorm and you're going to say, what happened to those sheep? They're filthy. It's all about the backdrop. If the backdrop we're being judged by is human behavior, then we're, you know, we're no worse than the next guy probably. But if the backdrop that we're judged by is God's divine holiness, folks, it's, it ain't pretty. The Bible says in, 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 in Isaiah 64, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. And trust me, that's how God sees us. Not against human behavior, but against his own holiness. Why do we become blind to sin? Number three, self-pity. Whenever we start to feel sorry for ourselves and our lot in life and what's going on in our life and we start magnifying that and the enemy will help you with this, we feel like we have permission to comfort ourselves. Obviously, God isn't comforting us because we wouldn't feel this bad if God was comforting us. And so since we're not being comforted by God, we're going to comfort ourselves, And we feel like we've got a right to do it because our life is so difficult and so hard. And David, we don't know if David is exhausted and that's why he stayed home, but he's all alone and he is in a place where he has forgotten a couple things. He's forgotten God's blessing. He's forgotten his relationship with God. And he decides to comfort himself. And so when when Nathan comes to confront him, he says, David, you forgot who you are. You forgot all I've done for you. I have blessed you in so many ways. You forgot, and he lists. He lists about five of the ways that he blessed him. I did this for you, 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 I did this for you. But he didn't just forget God's blessing, he forgot God. God says to him, and if this wasn't enough, if all the ways I blessed you wasn't enough, all you needed to do is ask, I am right here. And you forgot me. You forgot my blessings, and you forgot me, and you in that dark place did the unthinkable against me. I was with a, 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 a lady this week that she had to meet with me this week because she needed to tell me what God's doing in her life. And so I made a place for it and she told me her story and I emailed her afterwards. said, could I share some of your story? She said, absolutely, if that would help somebody else. So her story was this. She, she said, for 62 years, I have struggled to connect with God. I've, I've been in church. I've been around church. I've been around God. I've been around prayer. But my life has been so difficult. And the sicknesses and, and disease and, and just everything has been hard in, in my life. And she said, uh, about a month ago, me and my best friend, and she, and she said, we, we talk truth to each other, and we, we were done at some, some event, and we came coming home, and she's dropping me off, and she says, uh, it's just as her friend says to her, she, he says, you, do you want to know what I think? And she's, she knows something's coming. She's like, go ahead. 
she said this. She said, I think that you're angry at God. And I think that you blame God. And I don't think you're going to be able to experience his love for you until you forgive God. And so she just took it. And then she went in and, and, and meditated and thought about it. And she saw that she saw the truth in it. So she got before God and she said something like this. She said, God, I know you're, you're perfect. It's impossible for you to ever need forgiveness because you're perfect in all you do. But God, for my sake, I need to forgive you for how hard my life has been. And I just want you to know that I forgive you. And she said, Pastor Tom, what happened next? She said, I've been in the midst of experiencing God's embrace. A week after that, she was in my office, her and her friend, and they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, she's at church. We're doing an altar call, and she comes up to somebody because God is directing her and says, can I pray for you? And she had no idea that this lady was in extreme pain, and she prayed over her, and God healed this lady. Uh, the test, I've got the test. I'll tell it at the Tuesday night on, on healing. But there was a, a miracle that happened through her last week. And she said, I have been experiencing the love of God that was always distant from me. And it started with me acknowledging that because my life has been so hard, I've kind of I've kept God at arm's length and I simply need to just say the words, I forgive you. To get mercy, we start by recognizing our need for mercy. Point two, the availability of mercy. David said, remember me not according to my transgressions, but according to to your great compassion. God, I'm owning my sin. I recognize my sin. I recognize the deception I gave into. You are looking for truth in the innermost part. And you've caught me. I have sinned against you. You are justified when you speak about my sin. But God, I'm asking that you don't remember me according to my sins, but according to who you are. You are a compassionate and gracious God. Remember me, not according to justice, which you have every right to do, but instead remember me according to your great compassion. David believes there is a deep, deep well of mercy in God. Listen to his words in Psalm 103, verse 7 and 8. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous or abundant in mercy. And it seems like Verse 7 and verse 8 are completely disconnected. He, he's got this comment about the acts have been, were revealed to Israel and his ways to Moses, and then he goes into this thing about who God is. Well, uh, these are very connected. 
Because what happened was God, Moses cried out to God, teach me your ways. Show me your glory. And God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide you and I'm going to have all of my goodness pass before you. And so he hides Moses behind the rock and, and the Lord goes by and Moses sees his glory and the Lord speaks. And here's what he speaks. These words about himself. This is the center of God's goodness. This is the center of God's glory. That God, his self-revelation, I am slow to anger. I am gracious. I am merciful. And I am overflowing with mercy. This is who God is. In Psalm 136, the psalmist says a certain line 26 times. The same line, 26 times in one psalm. You know, if you say something twice, it's to emphasize it. Three times, you really want to emphasize it. What are you trying to say when you say it 26 times in one psalm? Here's the line. His mercy endures forever. His mercy isn't just our hope today and for our future, but for eternity. His mercy never It never runs out. It endures forever. God is a merciful God. There is a deep, deep well of mercy in God. David believes this. Listen to what he says. He goes on in Psalm 103. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love, parentheses, mercy, for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Of course, scientists are still trying to figure out how high those heavens are. Trillions and trillions of miles. It's, it's, a, big, it's a big difference between heaven and earth. That's a lot of mercy. As a father has mercy on his child. Psalm 103, we don't know when he wrote this. Could have been any time in his life. It could have been looking back on his life. But there's something about a father's love for his children. Love comes out of a dad that he never knew that he had when he has children. Very different than the love you you had for your parents when it's your child. And the story of Absalom, David's third son, really it's a tragic story in every way. Absalom ends up killing David's first son, Amnon. And then Absalom is banished for a while from his presence because of this, and then David welcomes him back, but he, although he appears to come back, he, there is betrayal in his heart, and he leads this huge 
rebellion against David, against his own father. He, he, he wins the heart of Israel, and all Israel uh, comes together around him, and the army chases David, chases David out of Jerusalem, and, and David's few men are in the wilderness, and Absalom is, is running this campaign to take over as king for his dad. And here's what David says to his men as this army is approaching. Please spare my son Absalom. Please. And anybody reading the story is like, please don't spare Absalom. That boy needs to die. That boy, he is the problem, and there's no way you're going to solve it without, including Joab, who's in the story. And Joab makes sure that Absalom is, is killed and that justice comes to Absalom for all he does. And the news comes back to David about the great victory. And all David is is filled with tears for his son. And he says these words. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Would that I had died instead of you. His heart is so filled with mercy for his son. When the prodigal son in Luke 15 comes home, he has trampled on all of his father's inheritance, taken it, spoiled it, wasted it. He's, he's stayed in rebellion. And when he finally comes home, he says this to himself, I will say to the father, to my father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Make me as one of your hired men. A hired man is It works for minimum wage and lives off the property. Here's what he's saying. My father is merciful enough to to have me not starve, but I understand that he doesn't want to see my face anymore. I will live somewhere else and just come in and work for minimum wage. You don't need to see me. And when he comes home, the father starts running to him. And the father puts his arms around him. And he says, go and and get the best robe and get sandals on his feet and put a ring on his finger. Kill the fattened calf. We need to have a party. And he grabs his son. And his son changes what he was going to say. And he just says, father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't add the thing about make me as a hired man because he knows that's not what the father's heart is. The father's heart is redemption. The father's heart is restoration. Sometimes we just lose track of how the father feels about us. In 1985, I was working in Madison as an investment broker and I was a very stubborn, independent son. I'm the fifth, fifth child, the second son. And, uh, but I had, I had kind of made my dad very upset by um, leaving Catholicism, which was his... For, for him, that was our identity. It was more than just a, a religion. It was our identity. And I left Catholicism, and then it just was tense, and so I knew I was on my own, and we were on our own, and we had a, uh, one child at that time, and we were, he was tough growing up. We, we needed to 
own our mistakes and we needed to work hard and we needed to not look for help. We, we needed to, to take care of business. And I had made a financial mistake and it came back to haunt me. And it's August of 1985. Rent is due. I can't pay it. And I've got nowhere to turn. All of my friends are as poor as I am. They can't help. And I'm, I'm trying to, th- I don't know what to, this is an emergency. I'm working straight commission job and it, it's really, it's really tough. And so I'm like, I just, I need to call my dad. I don't, I don't know what, I have no idea what he's going to say, but I'll just tell him what happened. And I call my dad. And what came through that phone was pure mercy. He was so thrilled that I had called him. And he said, I'm going to give you this much as a gift, and I'm going to give you this much as a loan, and you pay it back whenever you want to, but I want to be here for you. And it healed that one act healed my relationship with my dad. And I, I knew my dad, whatever, however my dad was as a person, he loved me. And he wanted me to succeed. And I just want you to know today, however you have felt, whatever you have done, whatever mercies you have trampled over, However much you may have think you have ruined it between you and God, I want you to know something. God loves you. And when he thinks about you, what's on his mind is mercy, not judgment. And there is mercy available for you and for me. Point three, last point, receiving mercy. David says it twice that there's mercy for those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great your mercy is for those who fear you. As a father has mercy on his children, so great is your mercy for those who fear you. So let's talk about the fear of the Lord. What does he mean? The fear of the Lord. What does that mean? First, it's, it, it, what the fear of the Lord means, it means to recognize that you are accountable to God and God alone. David says, I have sinned against you and you alone have I sinned against. Whatever sin you've committed against people, God took it personal. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did it to me. You didn't just betray Uriah. You betrayed me, David. You didn't just kill Uriah. You, that was me. Everything you've done wrong, you, I took it personal. I am the judge of the whole earth. I am, they can't judge you. You're the king. There's no way they could be your judge. I am your judge. And when you recognize that God the only one you need to please is God himself. That is the fear of the Lord, to live for an audience of one. 
It's funny, whenever you hear the words, the fear of the Lord, we picture people cowering before God. It's nothing like that. Look at Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. It says this about Jesus. That the spirit of the Lord is upon him. The spirit of wisdom and knowledge and power and might. And um, it gives six different things. But the seventh that it gives is this. That on Jesus, what rested on Jesus was these six dimensions of the Holy Spirit. And then it gives the seventh. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. And it's just, it's just listed all of these awesome things. But then verse 3 of Isaiah 11 says this. But his delight was in the fear of the Lord. Not in the power, not in the wisdom, not in the understanding, not in all of these other things. His delight was in the fear of the Lord. Why would his delight be in the fear of the Lord? Jesus lived for an audience of what he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I just, I just live before him. I want to please The fear of the Lord chases every other fear away from our lives. You're no longer afraid of the economy. You're no longer afraid of people. You're no longer afraid of of what's going to happen to you. All other fears live when you live to just please him. And, of course, this is why David was the man after God's heart. This is how he had luck. He, he, he had lost that place. He had gotten in the place of being the king, and, and pride had gotten in, and, but he's coming back, and we read it in Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Oh, God, wash me. Clean me of this thing. And then, and then the, he says this. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Did you notice in this whole prayer of repentance, there's no talk about the palace? There's no talk about, God, don't take away my position as king. You know how much I love being king. You know how I love being king. Uh, and Lord, I don't, please, whatever you do, don't take away my big screen TV. Please, God, you know I can't live without that thing. There's no mention of anything. God, I don't care what you take away. Just don't take away you. Don't take away your closeness. And part of the fear of the Lord is purposing to not trample on mercy. He is not just saying, God, forgive me. He's saying, please, God, create in me a clean heart. Put a willing spirit in me. I don't want to sin against you again. I want to please you. I want to live in a way that pleases you every day. I'm coming back to truth. I'm coming back to integrity. And I'm coming back to living my life close to you. This is what it means to fear the Lord. Receiving mercy, those who fear him. And then lastly, those who wait expectantly for his mercy. Listen to Psalm 123. I lift, I, sent, I, I recently sent them my new message and they don't have it, so they don't even know what I'm doing here. Okay. Psalm 123. I lift my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. We keep looking to the Lord our God for his mercy. Just as servants keep their eyes on their master, as a slave girl watches her mistress for the slightest signal, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. 
For we have had our fill of contempt. We have had more than our fill of the scoffing of the proud and the contempt of the arrogant. This whole psalm has got our eyes are on you. We're tired of man. We're tired of man's judgment. We're tired of man's scoffing. We're tired of man's pride. Our eyes are on you as a, a mistress, as a slave girl watches her mistress. For any sign of mercy, our eyes are on you. We're looking for your mercy. Listen to Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is full, abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It starts by saying this. If you were counting sins, no one could stand before you. Everybody would be out. That's how it starts. And then it's this cry for mercy. And he pictures himself as a watchman, like watchmen wait for the morning. A watchman is is the, the guard of Israel. They guard on the walls and they watch. And as long as it's night, they are exposed because they can't see. They're, they're exposed to attack. They're exposed to something bad happening. But once the daylight comes, they can see clearly and they, the, everything is at rest because attacks will come at night, not in the morning. And so the watchmen are eagerly, expectantly waiting for the morning. And he says, in the same way, we are waiting for you to be merciful. We do not deny that it's a dark hour. We are not living in denial of the darkness, the political darkness, the terror darkness, the, the, the moral darkness of our land. It's not that we're in, living in denial that it's dark. It's that we, our eyes are on you. It's not on what everybody's doing wrong. It's not what we deserve. We are, we, our eyes are on you. We need mercy. We have prayed for mercy. We are believing for mercy. We are expecting mercy. And as sure, as sure as the morning comes, the watchman isn't just hoping that morning will come. Oh, maybe it won't come. Maybe it won't come this time. No, the watchman knows morning is coming. If you could just wait long enough, the morning will come. So we are waiting for your mercy, oh God. We are waiting and our hearts are expectant because you are a merciful God and in your judgment, we can pray that you will be merciful. And this is the hope of not just our lives. This is the hope of America, is the mercy of God. We, the last year, actually it was this year, beginning of this year, had a number of 
prophetic experiences saying that it's time to go into the land and uh, it's time to enter into the land. It's time to, to, God's calling us out of the wilderness to go into the land. And so we set up these nights called Worshiping and Waiting. And it was as a response to this. And so we've had several of them. We've got another one coming up on December 2nd. And it's a call to worship before God and wait for God with no agenda of our own. With no, we're, with, there's no, we're going to do this, then we're going to do that. No, no, we're just going to be, we're going to be in his presence. We're going to worship. And however God leads, we're going to do that. And the idea was that in that place, God would tell us what to do to enter the land. And I found out <laughs> over many weeks, finally realized worshiping and waiting wasn't for direction. Worshiping and waiting is the direction. That what God's asking for in this hour from his people is a posture of worshiping and waiting. Instead of a posture of activity, and I'm just going to do whatever I want to do and ask God to bless me, and just I'm just going to, to cease all of our striving and to position our hearts and our lives in this place of surrendered worship and expectant waiting. And so what we're doing in the worshiping and waiting nights, here's what we're doing. We're practicing. It, those nights have been re- very precious, but it's really not about those nights. It's about our life. It's about a lifestyle positioned not for selfish ambition, not so that God will do what I want him to do, but a life positioned to worship and wait. So earlier this year, in early October, we, we just got done with the missions conference. I was, I was just exhausted. It had been a long week, long month, one thing after another, and we were leaving town. We went, somebody gave us their timeshare down in Missouri, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful week. Just Alice and I, and um, just a, a week of relaxing, and at this timeshare, they have swimming pools and hot tubs, and uh, you, most of you know how I feel about hot tubs, and, um, and so it's the last day we're, we're leaving. We're leaving that day, but we're, we're, we're not going all the way back, and so we've got, uh, we're going to stop halfway, and so we, we, we can milk our time there. So we check out, and we're going to spend one last time in the pool in the hot tub, and so Alice is in the pool. I go over to the hot tub. It's my last time there. And uh, there's a guy sitting in the hot tub. And uh, I sit down near him, and, and we're, I'm chatting with him. I ask him where he's from. He's from Madison, Wisconsin. And so we start chatting. I'm going to change his name for just in case he's watching online because he knows all about our church now. And uh, we're, we're chatting, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the name Mike for him. And he tells me about his life, and he's telling me about he, he's had a business in Madison for 40 years, and he's telling me about his children and his grandchildren and what they're going to do for the holidays. And I'm just, we're just chatting about all these different things. And then he asks about me, and I say that I'm a pastor and tell a little about my life and our church. And, um, and then I say, how about you? What about you religiously? And he says, uh, well, 
He says, I was, I was raised uh, going to church, but that all ended after I got back from Vietnam. He said, I, 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 he said, I, I haven't had anything to do with church or God since Vietnam. And so I just talked a little about war and free will and why people are allowed to do evil things. And, um, but then I asked his forgiveness. I said that the, the, tr- the most troubling thing about Vietnam was not the war that was fought over there. It was the lack of a welcome, that you guys were over there fighting for our country. You were sacrificing for our country, for Americans, and then you came back and Americans were angry at you. And throwed stuff at them. It was just horrible, name-calling. And it, it, it really, really messed up Vietnam, the, the soldiers of Vietnam, the, the, the lack of welcome. And I said, bro, I said, listen, we sinned horribly against you and against everybody that was fighting for us. Please, would you forgive us? Would you please forgive us? And then I asked him if he thought he'd go to heaven if he died. And he's, he's like, I don't even know if there is a heaven. I don't, I don't know what to think. I said, well, I said, if you died and you stood before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And he said, well, you know, I've tried to be a good person and da-da-da-da-da. And I said, that's a similar answer to what I would have given, but it's very different than what the Bible says. I said, would you be interested in me sharing briefly what the Bible says about how a person gets right with God. And he's like, honestly, he says, I have no idea what the Bible says. He said, I've never read the Bible. He said, go ahead. So I take him, I take him through the gospel and um, God's love for him and why Jesus needed to die on the cross that we're all sinners and, and that that Jesus is now knocking on our hearts and, and that we, we need to be saved. We, we, we need, it comes as a gift, but we, need to be, we all need to be saved and that Jesus knock, is knocking on hearts and in many different ways. And I talked about that and, and I said, Mike, um, do you think Jesus is knocking on your heart? He says, yeah. I said, okay. I said, well, w- w- when somebody shared with me long ago something similar to this, and, and he offered to, to pray with me and to, to, to pray together. Now, you could, I could give you the prayer, and you could pray it on your own, or uh, we could pray together. I said, whichever one. He said, I, I, want, I want to pray together. And so here we are in this hot tub, and I pray, and he prays after me, and and he gets done accepting Christ. And I say, Mike, I just, I just, I want to pray for you now. I've got my eyes closed. I just want to pray for you. And I lifted up a hand like this. And I started praying for God's healing for all of the wounds of Vietnam. That God would go where no man can go. And bind up that which is broken inside of him. And I look up after the prayer. And he's got tears streaming down his face. And he stands up in the hot tub and, and I stand up and I've got my hand ready because I am not picturing a hug in the hot tub. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going there. So I put my hand up. He's having none of it. He grabs a hold of me. 
and he holds me and he says, thank you. Thank you. And I reflected as I, as we parted ways, I gave him all of my information and I reflected on what happened there. For 45 minutes, not one person interrupted us. It was just us for 45 minutes. And God simply wanted to show mercy to a broken human being that wasn't even looking for him. So we're, the worship team can come as we close. I want to give two, two calls for prayer. And here's the first one. To receive God's mercy in Christ. I want to read Titus 3, 3 through 5 to you. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It's very difficult on American ears to hear the, this idea that I need to be saved. But trust me, we need to be saved. Our righteous acts cannot make us right with God. God had to come. He appeared in flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. He died your death on the cross and rose again from the dead for this one purpose, that he could show you mercy. The worst day in all of eternity will be at the great white throne judgment where Jesus, with tears in his eyes, will to, to many in humanity, will have to say these words. He won't say what David said to Absalom. He won't say, would that I had died instead of you. He will say these words. I did die instead of you. I did die for your sins. And the judgment you're being sent to is completely unnecessary except that you refused to acknowledge your sin and your need to be saved. You refused and resisted my mercy. And now with tears in his eyes, he will have to say goodbye to some people for all eternity. Could we bow our heads for just a moment? The Bible says this is the time of salvation. This is the day. Jesus is coming back. There's a day coming back where it will be too late. This is the time. And Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to them. He did it for Mike in a hot tub. Maybe you're here today and you're willing to own your sin and you're willing to own that, that Jesus is knocking. This isn't just about a man talking, but Jesus is knocking. And you want to open the door today. With every head bowed, because this is between you and God, but I have people raise their hands because somebody helped me open my door, and I love to help other people. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand real high right now? 
I see that hand. God bless you, bro. I see this hand. God bless you. I see this hand in the back. I see this hand. Thanks, buddy. Anybody else by upraised hand? Yeah, I got you. Thank you, ma'am. Bless you. If you raised your hand, would you just put it on your heart right now and pray something like this to the Lord. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me, for taking my punishment. Lord, I own all of my sins against you. But that's not all I own. I own your love for me. I own your mercy for me. I own your death for me. So come into my heart and make me who you want me to be, I pray. I receive your mercy and your gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Then could we stand to our feet, please? Maybe you're here today and sometime during this service, God caught your heart just like he caught my heart at that, at that launch of sin you've been living in, an attitude that you've been carrying. Maybe he's, been, he's caught your heart about self-pity, that you have been giving yourself permission to sin because your life is so hard. And the, and the Holy Spirit, that's, that's not why he gives grace. He doesn't give grace so that we will keep sinning. He gives grace so that we'll be free from sin and start living to please Him and to be these shining examples. So if that's you, and God's cut your heart today, would you just open your arms to receive mercy today? Lord, thank you that you are so faithful to us that you tell us the truth. And you don't tell us the truth to beat us up with it or to condemn us with it. You tell us the truth so that you can root out sin and attitudes and self-pity. And Lord David prayed, God, wash me. So wash us. He prayed, create in me a clean heart. So God, create in us a clean heart and a willing spirit. And then David prayed this, restore to me the joy of being saved. Restore to me the joy of being yours. Lord, would you restore that joy today? Would you restore it? And then would you overflow it? Even as David prayed, then I will, I will be a beacon out there and, and others will come to you. Others will turn to you. And Father, I'm praying for our congregation that we would live lives expectant. Live surrendered lives that are expectant for you to show Mercy, whether we're at work or at school or in the hot tub or we're on vacation, that you are a merciful God and we are the plan for reaching this world. Would you make us lights individually and then as a congregation? Could this be a bright, shining light of your mercy? 
Lord, we're praying this morning for this nation that is so filled right now with hatred and accusation and suspicion and darkness. And Lord, certainly America deserves judgment. I think we're all in agreement that if we got what we deserve, this would be really, really bad in America. But God, we're asking for mercy that you would grant repentance to our leaders. Grant repentance, God, to our pastors and leaders and to our churches and God, forgive us for making up a gospel where we could just keep sinning however we want to, and God has to forgive us. Dear God, restore the fear of the Lord in our churches, we pray. Restore the fear of the Lord in this land, we pray. And bring a great revival and awakening to this land, we ask. In Jesus' name. We're going to have our ministry teams up here, and if you'd like more prayer, you're welcome to come on up. You're certainly welcome to stay and just worship for a while, but please pick up your kids. We love you.